Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Hear God's word to us this morning. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I must make a confession. In the early days uh, when we were looking at this potential lockdown and shutdown of things, before I understood the full scope of the crisis, its economic impact, how long our shutdown would last, I was looking forward to the possibility of a little downtime, to a little pause from the relentless busyness and the ceaseless activity of our culture. I thought perhaps maybe being at home with your family and not being able to go out and about and plan and do and that we might be able to um, slow down a little bit rest a little bit, reflect on priorities of our lives and our schedules, perhaps even embrace the season as a season of Sabbath. But this did not turn out as I had hoped. (laughs) For me personally, the first six weeks of our shutdown was far busier than prior and far more stressful. And I know that is the case for probably many of you. I know that some of you are actually working a lot more (laughs) not less, and that you're feeling more stress and not less stress. But I also know that some of you actually are working far less, and actually you have a lot more time on your hands. And yet, I know that this has not necessarily translated into more rest, that you've experienced this time off, and it's not restful time, but stressful time. But regardless of our particular circumstances of our work situation and home life situation, the question that I want to explore this morning is simply this, is what would it mean for us to experience this season, this strange wilderness, as a season of rest? What would it look like for us to find rest for our weary souls during this time? One of the pillars of biblical spirituality is the necessity of Sabbath rest. And observing the Sabbath is not merely uh, one of those rituals in the Old Testament that sort of goes away when Jesus comes. Jesus does not abolish the Sabbath. He fulfills it. And um, as one of the Ten Commandments, it's still binding because, you know, again, as, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is what the commandment says, in which we heard in in our call to confession. Six days you shall labor and do your work on the seventh day, is a a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And on it you shall not do any work. And the reasons that 
keeping Sabbath are given in the Bible are key because Sabbath is actually part of the created order in a sense. There's a pattern of six and one that frames our whole experience of, of time and of our calendar. Um, but Sabbath also is a reminder of God's salvation. When, when, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were slaves. And when the Lord God brought them out of slavery, he emphasized the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a way to remember that we are not slaves to Pharaoh. We are not required to work without end. And so Sabbath is, is, is this rich sort of practice and spirituality that reminds us that the creator God has built rest into creation, but also that the very meaning of salvation is, is entering into God's rest. And, and as, as Christians, there's a lot of freedom we have in terms of how we practice Sabbath, right? That's, I think, the change that Jesus brings is that there's, there's Christian freedom in, in how we practice Sabbath, but there's, there's so much wisdom in, ju in just taking a Sabbath, just pure and simple, taking time off, ceasing from our work. Eugene Peterson is right, I think, when he says, if you do not regularly quit work for one day a week, you know, we take ourselves too seriously. The moral sweat pouring off our brows blinds our eyes to the action of God in and around us. For so many reasons, we need to practice Sabbath rest, real time off. We need Sabbath rest to connect with the Lord. We need Sabbath rest to remind us of our creaturely limits. We need Sabbath rest to simply enjoy the work of our hands, to be re-energized for our work, we need Sabbath rest to connect with God and with one another and to be simply reminded that God is God and we are not God. And yet, I think that observing Sabbath is, is much harder than it seems. It's not simply as easy as just taking one day off. It's very hard for us to stop working, to slow down. It's not like a switch you can flip, right? Working, not working. Active, resting. And I think this explains how it's possible to have a lot of time on your hands, more leisure, and yet not feel more rested. Because Sabbath rest is elusive. True rest is elusive. And it's elusive because of this, because it's, it's really spiritual in character. True Sabbath, which refreshes our bodies and our souls, is deeply spiritual in character. It requires not simply a cessation of work, but a cessation of work as an act, an expression of faith and trust in God. I think this is really key. So it's one thing to just stop working and cease activity, but it's another thing to stop working and the, the ceasing stop working is an act of faith and trust in God as God. And Jesus holds out this incredible promise of Sabbath rest to us in this verse. He says, come to me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Basically what Jesus is saying is like, I am the source of Sabbath rest. If you want to rest, come to me. Come to me. Friends, at the end of the day, the possibility of finding rest 
true rest for our souls has less to do with our external circumstances and more to do with the quality of our relationship with Jesus. It is possible to be an extraordinarily busy person that has many, many hours, that works hard, long hours, that has a very demanding job with lots of responsibilities and pressure, and to still experience Jesus' Sabbath rest. And it is possible to be a person that does not have a demanding job, that has plenty of time on their hands, and yet not, and still not be able to enter and experience Jesus' rest. And the reason is this, is at the end of the day, finding rest for our souls has to do with our inner life. It has to do with something from the inside out. It has to do with how we process the world, our heart attitudes, the postures of our soul, and how we relate to God. And Sabbath practice always brings this, this into connection for us. Friends, are you feeling stressed? I know you are. I know you are. Do you carry a heavy burden? I know you do. Are you anxious? Jesus is inviting you. Come, come, come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. But I think the question is, well, how do we do this? How do we experience this rest? It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to have that promise held out to us, but how do we do it? Um, There's three things I think this text teaches us about entering Jesus' rest. The first one is that we have to become like a child. The second is that we need to take on Jesus' yoke. And the third is we need to learn his gentleness. So those are the three three lessons from this, this passage I want us to explore this morning. So the first is this, we need to become like a child. The philosopher, uh, the, the philosopher Immanuel Kant has a very famous essay that he wrote called What is Enlightenment? He, he's asking this question, what does it mean to be an enlightened person? And he defines enlightenment this way. He says enlightenment, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. And this immaturity is self-imposed if its cause lies not in a lack of understanding, but in indecision and a lack of courage to use one's own mind without a guidance of another. For Kant, enlightenment means growing up, being an adult, thinking for yourself, not depending on others to tell you what to think or how to think, right? Maturity and enlightenment is to be an adult, really, to grow up and to not need others, not need authorities outside of yourself. Now, I I want to contrast Kant's, and and really this represents, I think, our culture, (laughs) how we think about what it means to be a mature person, is to think for oneself. I want to contrast that with what Jesus says about maturity and understanding. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you have revealed them to to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
According to Jesus, true understanding or enlightenment, if we want to use that language, true revelation of God's ways and God's plans is not given to the wise adults in the room, but to the children. And and just a couple chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, um, and you'll You'll know, many of you will know this verse. Jesus says this. He says, a bunch of children have come to him, and his disciples have tried to keep him away. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so paradoxically, the way that, that Jesus describes maturity and enlightenment is with that of a child. And I think it's helpful here to kind of pause and look at the larger context in the Gospel of Matthew was where we find this this text because Jesus has been uh, in sort of controversial uh, conversations with many of the leaders and the people of Israel. He's just come um, from a town in which He did all kinds of mighty works, and he preached the kingdom of God, and yet the people did not repent. And so these things that have been revealed, what they are is basically the message of the kingdom. It's the message of repentance, and that Jesus did all these miracles and all these things, and yet the people stood back, right? And said, well, we don't. No, this doesn't fit. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem like wisdom to us. And actually, Jesus compares himself and John the Baptist. He said, you know, John came, and he was, you know, John came preaching a message of judgment, and you said, you know, he's crazy, he's a fanatic, right? John brought the message of the kingdom with a sharp edge. I came, I came eating and drinking. I came mixing it up. And you said, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. See, it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying that, like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many miracles, it doesn't matter who the messenger is, you're wiser than God. You're more understanding of God, but this is a false maturity, it's a false wisdom. And I think what Jesus is identifying here, and this is, I think, very important for us, the false wisdom that Jesus condemns is the belief that God needs to justify his ways on our terms and conditions, according to our wisdom of how the world works. And and again, to be wise (laughs) and understanding presumes our self-sufficiency. It presumes our independence apart from God. And again, it doesn't matter how many miracles Jesus would do, but as long as they don't fit into our scheme, into our understanding, it doesn't work. Jesus has to justify himself. God has to justify himself on our terms according to our construction of the world and how it works and how it should work. And, and what Jesus does is he just draws a contrast. He says, this is, this is wisdom and understanding, that, and you'll never know God, and you'll under, never understand his revelation of this is your posture. And he contrasts that with that of a child. To be a child is to be in a place of trust. I mean, children up to a certain age are just inherently trusting of their parents and of authorities. They're humble and they're dependent and they're eager to learn. And it is a recognition 
as a child, to come to God as a child with a childlike posture is to understand that there is more to the world and God's ways in the world that we could possibly understand and presume. And to be clear, this is not to be confused with being anti-intellectual or to be naive. I've known a lot of really smart people, scientists, who are the top of their field, who are the experts. And one of the marks of those people is just an incredible humility and eagerness and openness to learning about the world, a sense of there's so much more about things that I don't understand. The psalmist describes the judgments of God as a deep. This is Psalm 36. The judgments of God are like the deep. In other words, to understand the judgments of God, the ways of God in the world, it's like trying to swim to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. You can't do it. And I think when facing a sort of awesome and powerful realities of God's ways in the world, his revelation, or his mysterious providence, instead of pride and self-sufficiency and demanding that God answer on our terms, we need to be like children with a sense of wonder and a sense of humility. And actually, I think King David is, is quite, quite um, captures quite beautifully in Psalm 131 the essence of this posture, this restful posture. David prays, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is David the king speaking, saying there's so much that I don't understand about your ways and plans, Lord, but I'm like a child. I just, I trust you. I trust you. What does any of this have to do with finding rest for our souls? One of the sources, friends, of our unrest and our anxiety and our inability, is our inability to entrust ourselves to the Lord, that he is the providential Lord of history, that nothing has come into our life by accident, It is to entrust ourselves to events in some ways that are beyond our control. One of the great themes of Sabbath in the Bible is how hard it is for people to enter into Sabbath and the way in which our, our inability to rest it is bound up with our unbelief. This is what happened to the Israelites in the desert, right? They, they were unable to enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. They could not trust God in the wilderness. And yet, I want to remind you of what Jesus says in this text that is so remarkable. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. It's an incredible claim to his sovereign power. He holds all the power in the world. He holds all of our lives in his hands, entirely and completely. Nothing will enter in without him knowing or without his say-so. And so like an infant at its mother's breath, his mother's breath or her mother's breath, this truth should calm our souls. Even though we don't understand what's going on in our lives, or what's going on, we can find rest because he is the Lord. We are not the masters of history. 
but we entrust ourselves to a God who is sovereign. So that's the first piece about finding rest. It's just is that recognition that God is God and I can, tr- I can trust him even though I don't understand. But the second is this. It is to take on Jesus' yoke. Take on Jesus' yoke. The second way we experience rest for our souls is by taking on his yoke. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? What does it mean when Jesus says, take my yoke? There is a lot of irony here in Jesus' invitation to rest. It's interesting. What he doesn't say is he doesn't say, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my pillow. Take my pillow, right? That would be kind of what you would expect. Instead, he says, take my yoke. And what is yoke? But a yoke is an instrument of work. A yoke is an instrument of labor. If you think about a yoke, what a yoke is, is it's, it's a wooden cross piece that, that binds two animals together that plow a field, right? Or pull a cart. For humans, there's yokes, you know, that goes across your back and it helps distribute uh, weight so you can carry more than you would be if you didn't have the yoke. Throughout the scriptures, a yoke is a symbol of oppression and bondage. The Israelites were under the yoke of Pharaoh. A yoke marks submission and rule and toil. And so why does Jesus use this image to talk about rest? Again, it's very ironic. The first is this. I think that the reality is this, and this is everyone must bear a yoke. All of us bear some yoke. All of us are under some authority. All of us have to work. All of us labor in some field, and we serve some person or some reality, right? The idea that you could live without a yoke, just free to do and be, is really a delusion, right? All of us have a master. All of us serve something as part of being a creature. And so the question is this, whose yoke do you bear? Who is your master? Is your master like a pharaoh, cruel, expects you to work constantly, or is he gentle and kind? And during Jesus' time, there were two yokes, two cruel yokes in particular, that would have been in mind for the people. The first one would have been um, the yoke of Rome, of imperial Rome and their colonizing of the people. The second would have been simply the religious life of Israel during this time. The synagogues and the temples and Pharisees and teachers and scribes and and religious life um, during that time was just this vast regulatory system of rules and expectations and law books. I mean, it was like a bureaucratic nightmare but it had to do that your soul got caught up in the bureaucratic nightmare. You got to do this, right? You got to do all these things to belong. You have to do these different deeds in order to be acceptable by God, right? Religious life was overwhelmingly complicated and burdensome. And many people just couldn't keep up, right? They just couldn't keep up with this spiritual economy, and so they drop out. They just drop out of the economy altogether spiritually poor and homeless. 
And these are the people in the Gospels called the sinners and tax collectors, or the prostitutes, right? These are the people who could not compete within the spiritual economy. And Jesus comes to them and says, come to me if you want rest. I think it's really important just again to, to remember that Sabbath observance in Israel goes back to the time when Israel was slaves in Egypt. And they were never allowed to take a day off. They were never allowed to rest. And in fact, when the people do ask that they could, their burden could be lightened, Pharaoh makes it heavier. The whole Egyptian economy was really built on the backs of these slaves and the necessity for them to be ceaselessly toiling and laboring away. They could not get away to worship. They could not take a break. And so Sabbath is a reminder that the Lord had set them free from this, that they could rest. They could rest from the cruel master. And I think the continual importance of Sabbath rest for us today, friends, is to ask this question is, if you feel like you're unable to rest from your work, you need to ask yourself, who am I working for? If you are unable to rest from your work, you have to ask yourself, who am I working for? Who is my master? Whose yoke do I bear? Because the Lord, the Lord is gentle. His yoke is gentle. He wants you to rest. I think one of the signs that you live in a slave economy is that your life, there is a constant undercurrent of anxiety, stress, and borderline burnout. These are, in a sense, the byproducts of a slave economy. A slave economy is one that asks you to be always producing, always performing at higher and higher levels, to go beyond what seems reasonable or natural. It is the expectation that true success and flourishing comes from those who just work harder and longer and transcend, right, what other morals can't. Our whole culture now is really built on what people have called a meritocracy, that our worth and our significance our, of our identities is bound up with our work, with how good our work is, or how good we are at our work, what we accomplish and what we perform, what we've achieved, what our resume says or our CV says, right? And, and, and uniquely in the modern world, we, we have allowed our identities to be bound up with our vocations, such that if you lose your job, the thing that actually hurts more is not simply the fear of the economic fallout, but actually the spiritual fallout. I failed. Or what was wrong with me? There's so much spiritual uh, meaning identity that has bound up with our work these days, which makes it hard for us to stop working and to rest. Because if we feel like we stop, then we feel like we're not earning what we should be as people. But friends, this is nothing more than, than a slave economy that we've opted into. Nobody's forced it upon us, but we sort of just opt into it. And just let, let me be very clear. Work is good. Work is good. Hard work is good. Long hours, excellency, these are all good. Work is good. <laughs> but when your work in itself is your master, it will be cruel. 
when your work in itself is your master that you serve, it is a cruel master because you will never, it will never let you take a day off. You will never be able to work hard enough. You will never be able to perform well enough. You will actually never be able to get the satisfaction that you're looking for. What does it mean that Jesus takes up our yoke, that we take up his yoke? It is the recognition that I belong to a very different economy, not an economy of anxiety and stress and ceaseless activity, but an economy of grace, an economy of rest, an economy of joy. To take Jesus' yoke is to embrace him as the teacher, to embrace, to learn from him, for him to be the law of life for us. That's what it means to be a disciple, really, to take his yoke. And his yoke is not burdensome, and that when we're obedient and we follow him, it actually brings rest to our souls. And what this does, friends, is it changes the inner meaning of work. And this is what I mean, that Sabbath is an inside-out reality. And this is what Jesus has the power to do. He's able to change the inner experience of work such that you could be doing the same exact work, but you experience it very differently. Rather than experiencing it as a burden, as something you're always performing and you're trying to earn something, and you build your identity on it, it actually can be something in which there's just joy. You just enjoy it for what it is, and you know what it's not. But most important, friends, Jesus, taking Jesus' yoke, means is it's just understanding that actually he bears the burden. He bears the burden of the yoke ultimately. And that our work is simply a participation in his work. And that if he did not buckle under that yoke, neither will you. Our work is a participation in Jesus' work. Our bearing the yoke is a recognition that he bore the yoke that we could never bear. And because of this, we can just find rest. We can do our work, and then we can set it aside, and we can rest. So to enter Jesus' rest, we have to become like children and trust the Lord. We have to take on his yoke, knowing that he's the one. He's a gentle master, that he bears the ultimate burden of that yoke. But finally, and, and this is the last point, we need to learn his gentleness. We need to learn his gentleness. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does gentleness have to do with rest? What does gentleness have to do with rest? Jesus here makes a very direct connection between finding rest for our souls and his character as gentle. And he says, learn me. Learn me. Learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in spirit. As a virtue, the virtue of gentleness, it's sometimes called meekness. They're the same word. This is a uniquely characteristic virtue of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Some of you remember from the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, says, Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In our chapter here, just the chapter right next from chapter 11 and chapter 12, Jesus, he, he, he goes back to Isaiah 42 and he recalls a prophecy about the servant 
And he quotes it, and he applies it to himself. He says, this servant, he will, not he will not quarrel and cry aloud, nor will any hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. But think about that image. It's an image, it's a beautiful image of gentleness, a broken reed. He's so gentle that this broken reed, he doesn't blow over. The smoldering wick, the, the, you, you know, you think of a candle wick that's blowing that could just easily blow out with just a sneeze. He doesn't snuff it out. At the triumphal entry, there's a, there's a quotation that Matthew applies to Jesus from the book of Zechariah which says, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle. There again, gentle. Gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt and a fowl of the beast. Again, gentleness is a characteristic virtue of Jesus. Paul himself even evokes it. And he says, I entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. The ministry of Jesus is uniquely characterized by gentleness. And this is very much in contrast to the violence of the world. And Jesus was just addressing this violence earlier in the chapter when he's talking about John the Baptist and his imprisonment. And he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. Friends, the way of the world is the way of violence. It's the way of coercive power. It's the way of imposing our wills and our ambitions on creation and on one another in order to get what we want. And Jesus, as the one with all power and authority, comes into the world, and he doesn't match violence for violence. He doesn't match force to force. He says, no, I come, I come into the one, into the world as one who is gentle. But what does that mean exactly? It doesn't mean that Jesus lacks power. His gentleness does not mean he lacks power. It doesn't mean he lacks authority. It doesn't mean that he's merely passive and becomes a doormat for people to walk over. Again, he reminds us, all things have been handed over to me from the Father. But his gentleness has to do with how he wields power and how he wields authority. Jesus is incredibly restrained in his use of power and authority. Again, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Gentleness is the wise use of power and authority that brings healing, that makes connection, that restores, that brings flourishing. It's power used for the sake of flourishing. It's power and authority used for the sake of establishing connection and relationship. And at the heart of gentleness is this, is this it's an exercise of power with vulnerability. See, violence in the world is to exercise power without vulnerability. It is to use our power and our authority to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves from suffering, from hurt, and from harm. And what marks Jesus off from everybody else is that he comes into the world with all power and all authority, and yet he never uses that to protect himself from getting hurt or harmed. He's vulnerable. And because he's vulnerable, 
And because he has all power, he's able to connect with us. <laughs> those broken reeds and those smoldering wicks. Gentleness is a Sabbath virtue because resting from our work is a setting aside for a time our use of power and authority. It is actively letting go of our control of the world, our imposing our wills and our ambitions upon the world, of protecting ourselves. And, and when you're at rest, just think about what it means to sleep. When you are sleeping, you are vulnerable in so many ways. You're vulnerable. You're not doing, you're not active. But it's precisely when we become vulnerable that we become open to receive. We become receptive. We become open to new possibilities. And, and when we're able to connect, connect with the Lord and receive from him, connect with one another, we, we slow down and we listen to one another, connect with God's creation. The gentleness of Jesus is about his ability to establish and maintain connection, saving connection with us. He never uses his power and authority to protect himself or shield himself from harm from us. But he's gentle. He's patient. We're, friends, remember, learning Jesus' gentleness is, is not simply a matter of imitating it, but it's, it's recognizing that who he is. You were that broken reed. You are that broken reed. You are that smoldering wick. And when he came to you, he did not come like a, a gust of a wind or a hurricane. He came. He was gentle. He was gentle with you. And he continues to be gentle with us so as not to snuff us out. Friends, this is the, this is the Lord that, that you can entrust yourself to. This is the one who says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me and you will find rest because I am gentle and I am lowly. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would teach us about your gentleness and, and see how marvelous and tender you are with us, even when we are not tender and not trusting and that we're rigid and hard. Uh, you remain supple and vulnerable and open to us. Teach us gentleness. Teach us rest, Lord. Teach us to rest during this season where there's so much stress and anxiety. May we be like the nursing infant at his mother's breast. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.